Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the, the privilege that we have, Lord, to be able to gather together again. Think about this last year and just thinking about um, there were segments of this year, the whole first quarter, where some people couldn't gather here for a variety of reasons. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, for the privilege of being able to be restored to one another, that we don't have to feel as threatened for our health just to be together. And so we thank you for the privilege of being able to join with one another uh, under your name. And this morning, Lord, we thank you for just what you've done and even for what this season represents, Lord, as we get an opportunity afresh to consider what you've done and how you've come. And so we ask that you would bless our time as we open up your word. Uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and that you would bless our time, Lord, that we might be edified and built up for it. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. How many of you are familiar with the concept of mission creep? Mission creep. We've talked about it a time before. Mission creep is the concept whereby uh, some idea or organization or a tradition starts one way, then over time it morphs and becomes something else. It gets away from its charter, from its first love, from its reason for existing, and it becomes, uh, till it becomes something entirely different. Now, Advent and Christmas are no stranger to these effects. As many of you guys know, if you watch television, if you see Hollywood department stores, all those things, as they have gotten their hands on Christmas, they have commercialized it, monetized it, and relativized it to such an extent that its meaning sometimes is distant from what we see. Now, part of what I want you to see this morning is that Advent has a definite meaning and a definite mission. Advent has a definite meaning and a definite mission. And what I want you to see is that it's going to be different, though, than what we hear and celebrate in the world. Because the things the world celebrates tend to be hollow hopes. Don't get me wrong. Gifts, presents, family are all wonderful things, right? They're all wonderful things, but they are hollow hopes. They are hollow hopes, right? And many of the people in this world actually lack those things, which is one of the reasons why when we talk about Christmas and placing our hope on those things, for some people, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And then for other people, it's the most depressing time of the year because they don't have those things. They don't have family. They don't have gifts. They don't have all those things. And so the question we need to ask is, what does this, this season and what does this celebration really offer for us? What does it offer for us to celebrate and to hope in? And part of what I'm going to argue this morning is that the awesomeness of Advent is not found in its trees or its gifts or its festivities or even in family, but rather it's, all, it's, it's found in the person who brings unparalleled deliverance and a deliberate demonstration. It's found in the person who offers unparalleled deliverance and a deliberate demonstration. And so part of what we're going to see this morning is we're going to seek to answer the question, why did he come? Why did he come? And I'm going to argue that he came to provide a much-needed deliverance, and he came to provide a deliberate demonstration. Jesus came to provide a much-needed deliverance, and he came to provide a deliberate demonstration. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so let's see that he came to provide a much-needed deliverance. And so if you don't know this section of the book of uh, 1 Timothy, it's really all about Jesus' deliverance. And so Paul starts off kind of ranting and raving about his thankfulness to Jesus. And so if you look at verse 12, you'll see he starts off 
uh, offering up profuse thanks to Jesus because he's been appointed to his service despite Paul's past. So if you were to look up at chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that Paul is introduced in this book saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. But if you know the story, um, you know that Paul has been entrusted with the gospel. He's an authoritative spokesman, but that hasn't always been the case. And that's part of Paul's point here. He's overflowing and brimming with gratitude because not of what he, wa- what he is, but what he was. Because at one point, he was something very different. Look at verse 12. He writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful or trustworthy, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And so in case you don't know Paul's uh, resume, Paul's one of the most famous Christians. And the reason why he's one of the most famous Christians is because before he was the most famous Christian, he was one of the most infamous opponents of Christianity. One of the things you see as you study scripture is that Paul became, before he became a Christian, he was fiercely and doggedly opposing the Christian church, terrorizing Christians wherever they may be found, seeking to smoke them out in every corner so that he could arrest them and punish them and persecute them, right? And so as a, as a Pharisee and a Jew of the day, Paul was characterized by this intense passion for the traditions of the fathers and the law. And he was all about keeping it. And part of what he understood is that Christians were, he was convinced that Christians were not only in error because they followed after Jesus, he also believed them to be uh, distorting the truth and distorting the Jewish faith, so much so that he needed to stop them and and to silence them. And so in many respects, what we find is that uh, Paul becomes the most prominent kind of ringleader of terror and persecution the early church had known. And so Paul's name becomes prominent in the early church, but not for good reasons. In his passion and his zeal, uh, he goes from town from town and city to city, persecuting Christians, snatching them out of their homes, putting them in jail, uh, and in one case, voting even. (laughs) It's cool. Hey, baby. It's cool. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's cool. Um, all right. So Paul becomes the most prominent ringleader of terror for the early church. Um, and, and, not, and so what we find is that Paul not only uh, vigorously rejected Christianity, but he violently oppressed it, even to the point of taking the life of a man as he voted on Stephen's death. And so when we get to verse 13, he says uh, that he was a blasphemer, which means that he had slandered Jesus. He had spoken evil of him. He had spoken untrue things of him. And the rest of Scripture tells us not only had he done that, but not only had he denounced Christ, but he also had tried to force others to do the same kinds of things that he had done. Listen to this from Acts chapter 26, uh, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I did in Jerusalem. I not only locked him up, many of the saints, in prison, and after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In, In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. And so the picture Paul paints of himself is one of a man who's seething with anger and rage. He's zealously persecuting the church uh, wherever it's found, 
And Paul says this is why he can say that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent of the church. Now, verse 14, he goes on to say that though he was aggressively pursuing the church, that he was met with mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And so though Paul deserved wrath, though he deserved judgment for the things that he did, instead, notice what he received. He received mercy from God, which is kindness. It's to show pity and compassion to a person in need. It's to show uh, mercy in this sense. And so Paul says, though he was a blasphemer and a violent oppressor of the church, Christ met him with pity and compassion because he knew that he was acting out of ignorance and unbelief. Now, it's important to mention that being ignorant doesn't absolve you from responsibility, and it doesn't also lay a claim on God's mercy. He's saying this to tell us, to establish that he wasn't a willful, high-handed opponent of God. You get that? He's saying that he wasn't one of those guys who knew the right thing but did something different. He's saying that he was a hook, line, and sinker bought into it. He was a convinced persecutor of the church. Does that make sense? And so he was serving God in earnest when he was persecuting the church, thinking that Jesus truly wasn't the Messiah. That's why he was doing what he's doing. And so he's saying he was acting out of ignorance and unbelief. That's why he did what he did. Now, if you remember, uh, Jesus kind of warned of this. He warned of this phenomenon in, uh, in, in, excuse me, in uh, John chapter 16, verse 2. Jesus says, they will put you, talking to his disciples, he said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. In other words, he's saying that Paul was a true believer. He's saying there are some people who are true believers who are going to think that when they're persecuting you and they're putting you to death, they're thinking they're actually serving the Lord. And he's saying, Paul is saying, I was one of those kind of guys. I was a true believer in that respect. And then he goes on from there in verse 14, and he writes, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so notice, God's grace, his undeserved kindness and favor abounded toward him, meaning it overflowed for him. It increased and multiplied toward him. Another way of describing would be to say that God's grace toward Paul didn't diminish in the face of his foolishness. It didn't diminish in the face of his, his, uh, his sinfulness. Instead, notice God's grace matched and exceeded what he did. It exceeded his folly. It went above and beyond, and also it brought along with it faith and love. And so notice God's grace reacts not by diminishing, but abounding, not by shrinking, but increasing. He says that God's grace reacted to Paul's misguided and ignorant behavior and to his persecution of the church. And rather than uh, respond in that way, it met him and covered all of his sin. And so God's mercy superabounded. Now, all of this this entire experience of God's saving power in his life leads Paul to this inevitable conclusion about Jesus. Notice what he says next in verse 15. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And so notice that little uh, introductory formula. He begins to kind of, he uses that to drive home the fact that this is something that you should take to the bank. This is a faithful saying. This is something that you should embrace wholeheartedly um, and, and take to the bank. Paul tells us that Jesus came into the world for a singular purpose, to save sinners. Not so that you could be swagged out in all your drip, but so that he could save sinners. God the Son became a man and entered into our evil space so that he could save and deliver. 
God the Son became into the world like a, like a paramedic comes on a mission to rescue. That's what he's saying Jesus did. He's saying he knows personally that when Jesus came into the world, in light of his own experience, that he comes to save sinners. But notice who he comes to rescue. Not the sinless, but the sinner. Not the deserving, but the undeserving. Jesus comes looking for the bad. Jesus comes looking for the violator. He comes looking for the ones who have been rebelling against this thing to show them mercy. And so Paul is a recipient of that. Jesus comes so he can deliver those who are guilty of their sins so that they don't have to experience the eternal consequences of their actions. And so Paul comes and he says, Jesus came to save sinners. And he says, of whom I am foremost. Now, most people misunderstand what's being said here. Not most people. Some people misunderstand what's being said here. When he says he's foremost sinner, he's not baptizing sinfulness. You get that? He's not baptizing sinfulness. He's not saying it's normal or okay for me to be a wicked Christian. A lot of people use this verse in this way. And they completely ignore the context of what he's saying. He's saying he's the foremost sinner, not in the sense that he's still a sinner in that same way that he once was. Notice what he says in 1 verse 13. He says he was formerly a blasphemer, formerly a persecutor of the church. He's not saying that that's what he does now. He's not saying I haven't changed since then. You see? What he's talking about here when he says he's foremost is he's talking about the stain of his sin. He's talking about the stain of his rebellion. He's saying it's so bad that if you were to rank it, it would be top tier. It would be at that highest level. It would be the most pronounced. It would be the most ugly. It would be the most preeminent. You get what I'm saying? There are some athletes, you guys have seen when you go through the, um, in the Olympics, they have different uh, these. They have different steps, right? If you're first, if you're on the second, you're, you're on the different steps. Paul is saying, I'm at the top. Because of what I've done, the stain of what I've done, the evil of what I've done, he's saying, I'm at the top. I am foremost. I'm the most preeminent of sinners in this way, right? And so Paul is getting at this. He's saying that because of the ugliness of the things that he had done, he recognized that. And this is what Paul kind of gets at. You see him talk about this in the exact same way, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he'll go on to say, I'm not even worthy to be an apostle. He's all, they called me an apostle. He's all, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. And so Paul never got over the enormity of his sin and his error. He never forgot the gravity of his actions. He always understood the kind of offense that he committed. He recognized that the things that he had done were tier one evil, tier one uh, treason, if you will, against God. In, In life and in relationships, many of us know that there are some things that you do which will so ruin a relationship that it's hard to come back from, right? There are things that people can do in your family where it's like, it's hard to just put that away and to kind of start again. Paul recognizes that his offenses were tier one. They were the kinds of things from which a person shouldn't come back from. He had tried to oppose and crush God's very plan. He had tried to rid the church, rid the earth of the church. He had denounced Jesus east and west, north and south, preaching an anti-gospel. He had done all these things, and he says because of that, he's the foremost. He's the chief sinner. But God had a plan. And his plan was not only to deliver Paul, but also to use him to make a demonstration. God had a plan to not only deliver Paul, but to make him as a demonstration. Look at verse 16. He writes, 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so notice what he says. Notice what's happening here. He says, I received mercy precisely because I was the most prominent, precisely because I was the worst. He's saying God had a purpose in saving me and showering mercy on me because I was the worst. He says Jesus is, is sought to make an example out of me. And so Jesus is using Paul to display something about God and about God's mercy, right? And so let me give you an example of this. Um, some of you guys know we live in a, in a culture that's a very outrage kind of oriented culture. We live in an outrage culture where people love to make examples out of others. You know what I'm talking about? If you hear about this thing called cancel culture, uh, it's all filled with this, with people loving to make examples out of one another. And one of the things you see is that people love to send symbolic messages. They love to send symbolic messages through dealing with individuals. I'll give you an example. In cancel culture, when someone messes up, uh, they say something stupid, they say something insensitive, they do something that's deemed to be offensive or hateful, the powers that be which is really just people, uh, they will punish you in such a way to send a message, not just to you, but to the whole world. You get that? You've seen that? If you've been watching lately, some of the different athletes, some of the different entertainers, if they've said controversial things, and for the whole world to see, before the whole world, they have been humiliated, they have been uh, shouted down, they have been lost a lot of things in their pockets, sometimes deservedly, but my point is they will make an example out of you. They'll punish you in such a way that all the other people who are would-be perpetrators will learn, and they will catch the message real clear that if I do what he did, if I say what Kanye said, I know what's going to happen to me. It's going to be the same thing that happened to him. It's going to be the same thing that happened to Kyrie. You get what I'm saying? And in a similar way, that's what God is doing here. In a similar way, Jesus is saying that he used Paul to make him an example, but used him as a demonstration of God's great patience on all who would believe. Uh, And so in the same way that cancel culture publicly punishes and sends a message, Jesus publicly forgives and saves the most prominent and egregious sinner and persecutor in the early church. And he does that to send a powerful message just like they do to the world so that you all will know that mercy still exists for you, so that you all will know that forgiveness is still available for you. That's what Jesus does. He elevates the worst of sinners and saves them and transforms them and changes them in order that you all can see that you too can have hope in him, that you too can follow after him. And so Paul does that And and, and notice what Paul is saying. He's in essence saying that God has used his personal conversion as an instrument in God's saving plan. And so Paul is saying in essence that he is the embodiment of God's grace and mercy and God's patience toward him. And so every time you see Paul walking around in the early church, uh, people are kind of like this, like, wait a minute, isn't that that guy? Wait, the one who used to kind of beat on (laughs) y'all and he's with y'all? God is so good. God is so merciful. You know, if, he, if, he, if that guy can be integrated in there, maybe I can too. That's what Paul's, Paul is getting at here. He's saying God is using him uh, to, to, to uh, compel and attract through his conversion, to entice all of us who can come so that we can be saved in the same way. 
And so Paul's life is a living example of the kind of long-suffering that God has and the kind of forbearance that he shows. And it shows us something of the extent of God's patience and endurance with evil. Because in it, we see that God is slow to avenge. Notice, he doesn't destroy Paul right away. He could have. He doesn't end him right away, but we see that God is, as he tells us in the Old Testament, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he's ready to forgive. And so Paul is saying in the salvation of him, he's actually sending a message to all of us, that all of us should know that this same God who we follow is the one who does that. He offers forgiveness to all of us, to the worst of us, to the worst of sinners. And so what does this have to do with Advent and Christmas? And I'll tell you, it has everything to do with them in that salvation comes and that when we talk about Advent, it's all about Jesus coming to deliver and to offer this demonstration. He's aiming to offer this demonstration in order that you and I would be compelled to come in, that you and I would be compelled to to respond to him. And so he wants us to know that God came to retrieve not people with a spotless record, but he came to retrieve those with a checkered past, those who have moral failures in their background, those who have fallen and fallen and fallen. He's saying he's come for those people with the sinful inclinations in order that Christ might meet them, rescue them, and restore them back. Friends, that's why we celebrate Advent. It's not about gifts on a tree. That's good stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love that stuff too, so don't get me wrong. But it's about him sending his son. It's about him doing this work and showing this demonstration that the whole world can get behind and can receive and experience. That's what Jesus came to do. and, And so we see in this passage, Jesus Christ came in order that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might be, that he might take our place and die in our place. But before he could do all of that, he had to do something else. He had to be born, right? He had to be born. He had to live first so that he could live that sinless life and then go to that cross. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate Advent, that he came, that he was born. Um, And so Paul is telling us and pointing us to this reality that Jesus came in this way. Um, If you ever go to the barbershop, one of the things that you see when you go to the barbershop is that they have these books, these, um, these picture books, right? where you kind of, you get a picture of models or people who have gotten their hair cut in that same establishment, right? Now me, I'm someone who, I don't go to a barbershop that I haven't seen the pictures first, okay? Because the pictures tell you something. You get what I'm saying? It it tells you something about the quality and the character of the barber. It tells you something about the skills that he possesses. If you see somebody with a jacked up haircut, you probably shouldn't, you're inflicting your own wound. Does that make sense? And so in a similar way, Paul is setting up Jesus for us as that model, as that picture that's set outside, so that all of us can look at the grace and mercy that he's received and say, I want that too. I need that too. And we all come. That's what Advent is about. It's about Jesus coming, saving, and also leaving demonstrations and others so that all of us can come, because that's what God desires. He desires all people to repent and to be saved. And so he does this for our good, that we might come to know him and be forgiven of all of our wrongs. And so Jesus comes to save not people without faults, but people who are broken, who have made many mistakes so that you can be forgiven and made right and not have to endure the consequences of your things. And so my encouragement to you today is place your trust in the one who came to die for you. 
place your trust on the one who's taken on you, on himself, all of your evil and all of your sins so that you don't have to endure it and place your trust in him because he wants to change, transform, deliver, and make a demonstration out of you in another sense. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who is gracious and merciful, Lord, that the worst of us, even those who oppose your church, who seek to destroy your church, can find hope and mercy through your coming. Lord, and I pray that everyone here would come to know and understand and embrace uh, you, the one who came, Lord, that we might be forgiven of our sins and that we might follow after you. And so we thank you for this time. We thank you for this gathering. We pray that you would be with us as we continue on. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.